So I wonder, do you think people can change? Maybe we would say, no, they're, they're too stubborn to ever change. Don't look at the person next to you. Or no, no, they're, they're an addict. They will never change. It's always been that way. Or they're, they're so manipulative, they'll never change. Maybe you've even written someone off because you just thought, Sid, I've done it. I've had people in my life, a friend in particular, who drove me crazy. I considered him a little manipulative, and I tried and tried and tried, and finally I was like, I'm just done with you. That's it. You're never going to change. Or maybe we flip the script. Will I ever change? Like I've tried to change, but I can't. I just keep doing the same thing over and over and over, and this cycle keeps happening. I keep getting taken advantage of. Will I ever learn my lesson? Or I can't seem to get this addiction under control. Or my emotions are so unpredictable, so out of control, so damaging. I just keep making poor decision after poor decision after poor decision. There's a little bit of a discouragement with that, isn't there? Thinking that either others won't change or buying into the belief that that I can't change. It can be very defeatist. And yet, the gospel, the Bible, is predicated on the idea that people actually can change. The word that the Bible uses to describe change, or the process of change, is the word repent. Now, we don't really like that word because it's a little bit of an uncomfortable word. And nobody likes being uncomfortable. Like on Monday, I put a shirt on, a collared shirt, and as I buttoned it, I noticed it was a little too tight right here, probably because I dried it too much, not because of all the ice cream that I eat, of course. And so I put a, I put a sweater over it and so no one could see the buttons bulging, and it was just really uncomfortable all day. When I hear the word repent, kind of get that uncomfortable feeling, almost like wearing a shirt that's a little too tight. Maybe you feel that way too. I think it's because we have a deep misunderstanding of what the word actually means. We're going to turn today to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2, uh, we uh, learn of Jesus' birth. Jesus is born. Christmas has happened. In case you're wondering, Christmas is only 295 days away. Jesus is born. And then we flip the page from Matthew chapter 2 to Matthew chapter 3. 30 years have passed And Jesus is about to begin his very public ministry. And his ministry is introduced by a man who's become known as John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
This is one, the one who was spoken after the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who comes after me is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Lord, my prayer this weekend is that you would open our hearts and minds to receive all that you want to say to us. That you would speak to us, that you would transform us, and that you would make us just a little bit more like you. Amen. So on the church calendar, we've entered a season called Lent. It unofficially began on Tuesday, Fat Tuesday. Did you get your punchki? Punchki? I, I had raspberry. It was really good. I only ate half, though, because my shirts are too tight. Fat Tuesday, historically, was a day in which people would go and clean out their cupboards and eat all the fattening foods because Lent was a time of, of fasting. The official beginning of Lent is on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. Many traditions make the sign of the cross in ash on the forehead, which is a reminder that we are but dust, and to dust we shall return. But, but Lent, really, whether you eat a punchki or get ashes on your forehead, is, is a time of looking inward at our soul. I believe that the soul is the most real part of who we are. And so Lent is designed to be a time to slow down as we prepare for Good Friday and the crucifixion of Jesus and eventually Easter, the resurrection of Christ. The themes of Lent, regardless of what tradition you come from, are fasting, prayer, and repentance. But what does that actually mean? Repentance was the central message of John the Baptist, and it wasn't a new word. Uh, in the Greek world, the, the Greco-Roman world, the word repent simply means to change your mind about something. It, was, it wasn't good or bad. Like, for instance, I used to look at kale and think it was disgusting until I tried it, and then I realized I kind of liked it, and so I changed my mind. I repented. But John, John the Baptist used the word repentance in a much more robust way. Repentance for, for John the Baptist was, was not just feeling guilty about doing something bad. It was a, a changing of your mind and turning from an old way of living 
to a new way of living, and quite literally meant to change directions. Now see, for many, John the Baptist was actually a sign of hope. Because for 400 years, it seems to God's chosen people that God was silent. From the very last words of the very last Old Testament prophet Malachi, 400 years had passed and God was not speaking or working miracles and nothing was happening. And then John the Baptist emerges on the scene. See, the the Jewish people expected a prophet would come and announce the Messiah. And John fit the prophetic type. He lives in the desert. He eats bugs. Locusts, to be specific, which I heard are a good source of protein. He dresses like the poor, and he evokes in people's imagination this ideal of the prophet Elijah. John the Baptist also, like many of the Old Testament prophets, comes with this very strong message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. When John spoke of the kingdom of heaven, what he was speaking about was whatever is happening in the heavenlies, whatever is happening where God dwells is about to happen here on earth with the arrival of the Messiah, with the arrival of Jesus. So make the path straight. Now that phrase was actually a reference that would have been known to everyone that heard it. It was a reference to a king who traveled through his kingdom. When a king was traveling through his kingdom, uh, the roads would be repaired and straightened. All the potholes would be removed. All the curves would be taken out so that the king could have a smooth and straight ride. See, John the Baptist was calling people to remove all the obstacles out of our lives that get in the way of welcoming the Savior. Lent is that kind of season. So we have John the Baptist. He's baptizing in the Jordan River. People are flocking to him. His message is repent. And I imagine that if we could go back in time to walk among the crowds that day that gathered on the Jordan River, we would see a diverse group that came to witness the spectacle. See, amongst the group that gathered to hear John's message, there were those that were nominally religious. They could take it or leave it. This is just what they do. They heard some guy is causing all kinds of attention out by the Jordan River. And while religion is just kind of a task, a duty, we're going to go check out what this guy has to say. No sense of awe, no sense of wonder, just pure, dull religious duty. One of my favorite books is called Dangerous Wonder. And the author writes this. He says, we are in a war between dullness and astonishment. The most critical issue facing Christians today is not pornography or the disintegration of the family or moral absolutes or drugs or racism or sexuality. The critical issue today is dullness. We have lost our astonishment. 
The good news is no longer good news. It's okay news. Christianity is no longer life-changing. It's life-enhancing. Jesus doesn't change people anymore into wild-eyed radicals. He changes them into nice people. If Christianity is simply about being nice, then I'm not interested. And that really was the message of, of John the Baptist. But these, some of these folks that came to hear his message, yeah, maybe they went to synagogue, but there was absolutely no transformation. When you turn to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, God once again revisits this message. Revelation chapter 3, verse 15, I know your deeds, and you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So there's a whole bunch of people that come to hear John's message that they're just indifferent. Maybe they wanted something more, but they just didn't know how to find it. Maybe you can identify with this group of people. Yeah, religion, you go to church, but it's just kind of become a dull duty. You read the Bible, if I have time, pray, does God really hear me? The invitation of John the Baptist to you is repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That what's happening in heaven is about to invade the earth. There is an astonishment. There is a beauty. There is a a wonder that transcends church or religion that can only be found in the person of Christ. The one who said, I have come to give you life and life to the full. And it's not something I can fabricate, only something I can receive from his spirit. Now, as we continue strolling along the Jordan River, I think there was another group of people that were there, and that was the morally and socially bankrupt. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the violent, the cheats. Maybe you can identify with that group. Maybe there's an addiction you can't seem to beat. Maybe you're filled with so much anger and hate. Or maybe maybe you're abusive and you can't seem to get it under control. Maybe you're a chronic liar. Or maybe sexual life is out of alignment with God's best and you want to change and you want to become different. And you prayed and you prayed and it keeps happening over and over and over. And nothing ever changes. Nothing ever gets different. Well, John's message is the same. The gospel invites us to change. Yeah, but how, Mike? I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. And nothing ever changes. There's a third group that was there that day amongst the crowd. It was an unexpected group, really. No one even knows why they were there. And this is the self-righteous group, the deeply, deeply religious the Gospels refer to them as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two leading sects of Judaism. These were the religious elite, the faithful and the dedicated, but also a group that could be smug and a bit judgmental. I mean, Jesus actually had a lot to say about the self-righteous. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story and he says, to those who were confident of their own righteousness... And looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and one was a tax collector. 
The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, Dear God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look to heaven and he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, the self-righteous love this phrase. Those people. You know, those people. Like, I can't believe those people would think that way. I can't believe those people would vote that way. I can't believe those people would live that way. I can't believe those people that only come to church on Christmas and Easter. (laughs) Smells a little self-righteous to me. Much like the Pharisee and Jesus story, God, I'm thankful that I'm not like other people. John, ironically, was the most harsh with these folks. He called them a brood of vipers. Like, you know, if someone calls you a snake, like that word still translates 2,000 years later. Like snake means today what it meant back then. You're slithery, you're slimy, you're sneaky. Now, even the self-righteous can change, I know, because I was one, maybe still am one, depending on the day. See, repentance isn't a bad word. It's not a condemning word. It's not a judgmental word. It's actually a word that has a result attached to it. A new and robust relationship with God that affects every area of my life. Now, yes, of course, John, who came very prophetically, came with a warning, right? In verse 12, John says... His winnowing fork is at hand and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. Yes, there was a little bit of a warning in that. And though we don't like to be warned, we don't like to hear things that are hard because we're human, sometimes the words of scripture have a sting to them intentionally. But John's message was also an invitation to live a full life, a life completely transformed. Now, I've come to believe that part of the reason change is so hard is we have created a world that we are not designed to live in. I want to read some words from a book called You Are Not Your Own by Alan Noble. A defining feature of life in the modern West is our awareness of society's inhumanity and our inability to imagine a way out of it. This inhumanity includes everything from abortions, mass shootings, widespread cover-ups, sexual abuse and meaningless jobs, broken communities, and TV shows that are only good for numbing our anxiety for about 30 minutes. We weren't made to live like this, and most of us know it. But either we don't care, or we don't think we can do anything about it. 
So the mode that best describes our day-to-day experience is survival. Ask any honest parent or student or employee and they'll tell you that their goal for the day is to survive, to get through the day, to make it through. Existence is a thing to be tolerated. Time is a burden to be carried. And while there are moments of joy, nobody seems to be actually flourishing except on Instagram, which only makes us feel worse. Strikingly, even as our standard of living in the West continues to rise, our quality of life doesn't. It is possible to make the case that our world is getting better. The dramatic decrease in poverty is one of the clear examples that our world is becoming a bit more humane. But life, as Jesus said, is more than food and the body more than clothing. Often the very techniques that improve our material lives are the ones that alienate us from each other and from our creation. He goes on to write of a condition called zoocosis. Zoocosis is what lions do in the zoo when they pace in their cage back and forth, back and forth. Driven to psychosis, from living in captivity. Because for some reason, the the lion knows that that something is off. Yes, the habitat kind of looks like the wild, and they're fed the food they need to, to survive, but for some reason, it doesn't feel right. The habitat feels just a bit off. I mean, maybe you can relate to the lion who has zoocosis, that you look, look at life and things seem okay, but something just seems off. And so you pace through life trying to figure out what it is that's off. I mean, for so many years, my life just didn't feel right to me before I came to faith in Christ. Something just seemed off. And then I discovered who Jesus was and this whole new world was open to me. And the life abundantly that Jesus talks about in John 10, 10 became very, very real And because of that, I wanted to make a difference in the world. I wanted to fulfill Jesus' great commandment and commission of loving God with all my heart and loving people. And so I decided to become a pastor. And I went to college and I went to seminary. And I wanted to help people. And I started to work in churches. And I discovered that in churches, yes, we can help people and do good things, but there's politics and numbers and competition and budgets. And somebody's always upset and then, will someone please notice me? I want to be successful. I want to be important. And I found myself pacing once again. Maybe, maybe if the church were bigger, or maybe if the sermons were better, or maybe if I dressed just a little bit cooler, then things would be normal, and something once again wasn't right. Until I repented. Reinviting God to awaken my soul to those things that really mattered. Because see, all of life really is a choice. I mean, there was a choice in responding to John's message. Verse 5, people went out to him from Jerusalem and Judea, and they were confessing their sins and being baptized by him. I think in the Protestant tradition, we've missed something. In the church I grew up with, Confession or penance was a sacrament. So at seven years old, I made my first penance in which I sat in front of a priest and I confessed my sins. Now, 
in the Protestant world, like I, I live with the belief that I can go to God with my sins and he forgives me. He's faithful and just to forgive me. I believe that wholeheartedly. But James, the brother of Jesus, in his book writes, James chapter 5, verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to each other. That sounds horrifying and scary. And pray for each other so that you'll be healed. Not forgiven. That's God. Only God can forgive sins. But confess so that I may be healed. There is something incredibly healing about the power of confession, which I ironically now practice regularly with other people, the right people that I trust, because you don't want all your dark stuff out there. I have sat with dozens and dozens of people and watched the weight lift off their shoulders as they confessed their sins one to another. Because what confession does is it allows the soul, it opens the soul to receive life transformation that only his spirit can give. Like I... I do believe that people can change, and I wish I could just say, hey, here's five steps to change your whole life. But what Christian theology teaches us is that the only one that can actually change the human heart is God's Holy Spirit. And the only thing that I can do is open myself up to receive him and his work. And confession is one of those ways that I open myself up to him. Now, John speaks of opening ourselves up. He goes on to say, to the Pharisees in particular, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Keep, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Did you realize that actions have consequences, right? We learned that in kindergarten, right? Both good and bad. So if I go to school and I study, and I study hard, then I can graduate. Or if I exercise and I eat right, I can be healthy and my shirts will fit right. But if I do things that are bad, like if I commit a crime, then the consequences, I'll probably go to jail. And if I overeat, then I'll probably gain weight. And if I spend too much money, then I'll probably have crippling credit card debt. Actions have consequences. So let's use another uncomfortable word that is found in the Bible since we're on the day of uncomfortable words. There's another word that the Bible uses, and that's the word sin. Repentance is necessary because of sin. That's not my word, that's the Bible's word. Now, we make it more palatable by saying, well, I've got a bad habit, or I keep making poor decisions. But the word sin actually means to miss the mark. It's a violation of God's standards. In the very, very beginning of the Bible, Genesis, the message was to Adam and Eve, if you sin, you'll die. Now, God tells Adam and Eve, like, you can eat anything in the garden, if you're familiar with the story, except this one tree. Stay away from this tree, because if you eat the fruit, you're going to die. And what do Adam and Eve do? Well, they do what I would do. I went and ate the tree that I wasn't supposed to eat from. But then I noticed they didn't die. It's because death in the scripture often refers to separation rather than ceasing to exist. Adam and Eve were separated from God. They were cast out of the garden. 
My sins cause a separation from God and from the way that I'm designed to live. And so as a result, I'm like the anxious pacing lion going back and forth because something doesn't feel quite right. The visible verification of my repentance is, well, John uses the word fruit, which is simply another way to say result. The book of Galatians, the apostle Paul talks about the result. You want to know if you're changing? Here's how you know if you're changing. Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If I want to know if I'm changing and growing, it's actually quite simple and quite hard at the same time. Am I becoming more loving or less loving? More joyful or less joyful? More self-control or less self-control? It is the verification of what I say I believe. Like all of life is about verification, right? I go to the airport to get through security. I've got to verify that I'm me. And so I, I hand my ID in this, and I got to pull my mask down, sort of pull your mask down so I can see your face. And I go through and I verify my identity, the verification of my relationship with Christ is that I'm taking small steps, even if it's only inches, towards love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and self-control. So can a person change? Absolutely. A person can change when we open ourselves up to God's spirit And the way that I can open up myself to God's spirit is to listen to the message that John the Baptist gives us so many thousands of years ago. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. So as we wrap up, the next 40 days we're going to be looking at the themes of Lent. And next week, uh, I'm going to offer an all-church challenge that I think will make us better, but will also be incredibly, incredibly hard. But you got to come back next week to find out what that is. Today, uh, we are going to wrap up our time together with communion, which in and of itself is a, a time of remembering the very foundation of which on which our faith stands. And so if you've got your communion cups, I invite you to pull that out. Today we remember the death and the resurrection of Christ. We hear his words echo through eternity. This is my body, this is my blood. In the book of 1 John chapter 1, we read, that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So let's take a moment of quiet uh, together and offer up all of our failures, our shortcomings to a gracious, gracious God who receives us just as we are, but loves us too much to leave us there. Let's take a moment.
Now before we take the body and the blood of Christ, let's uh, pray a prayer of confession together as a church. On the screens behind me is the prayer. Let's read this together. Let's pray this together. God of mercy, we acknowledge that we are all sinners. We turn from the wrong that we have thought and said and done and are mindful of all that we've failed to do. For the sake of Jesus who died for us, forgive us all that is in the past and help us to live each day in light of Christ our Lord. Amen. The book of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 reminds us that we do not have a high priest who was unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples. He took bread. He gave thanks to God for it. He broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's now take the bread and eat it in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup together.